You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. no other genre film is social as horror. We started off watching it with friends, late in the evenings, probably in their parents' basements, laughing with every scare. And as soon as we're old enough, or look old enough, we're in theaters, and this is where horror truly shines, and more so than any other type of movie becomes a bonding experience. There's a difference between laughing with a theater full of people at a joke or a gag on the screen, versus jumping back in fright, our hearts racing, followed immediately by nervous laughter. That process of being scared shitless beforehand somehow makes the laughter far more personal because it comes from a place of vulnerability. This summer we lost an icon, someone who had the talent to bring us one of the most frightening villains of all time, and we're going to discuss that film as well as a couple of others. I'm assuming that you came from that same place as I did, that hanging out with your friends in your basement watching the horror films, or were there other films that you preferred watching at the time? Well, we don't have basements in South Florida, but aside from you that, know what I mean. <laughs> I do have a very vivid memory of being at a friend's birthday party, and I must have been maybe eight years old, somewhere around there, and watching the original Halloween. Right, and I, that's a movie that's stuck with me to this day. Both because a, it's a great movie; it's a wonderful example of horror done right, yeah. and. It's all, you know, it was also my introduction to you know, real horror. Of course, you know, I'd seen, you know, Bela Lugosi's Dracula and a lot of that stuff, but those weren't scary per se. Like they're classics, but they're not horror the way, you know, I think of it now. What's funny is that we come from a different place than the current generations that are experiencing horror now. We come from a place, especially even more so myself, of Horror by today's standards being a lot more thriller and suspense than just the torture porn that we're getting now a lot of the time, mm-hmm. which I've got very little patience for that because that's not something that is frightening so much as disgusting. It can still be done well. I'm not going to discount the entire thing, but there's something to be said about that film that manages to scare you, not because of the jump effects and not because of, again, the gore, but because it gets under your skin, because there's something and it builds. And that's something that Craven understood well, that being able to build suspense with regular people, not all the time, obviously, but <laughs> obviously, but you know, it's, it's something we're in. It's it's far more about the setup and mm-hmm. that setup just ramping and ramping and ramping up. Like if you look at whether it's the Hills of Eyes or Nightmare on Elm Street, it just keeps building and building and building. And it's the tension that's frightening, not the result of that tension, what the, the payoff is supposed to be. The payoff is rarely as good as that that feeling just your muscles in a knot as you wait for what your imagination is more often 
going to see as far worse than what you're going to see on the screen. Yeah, I think you can say about the vast majority of Craven's movies, you can take the monster out of the movie and it's still scary. Yeah. And I think that's his greatest accomplishment. And granted, not all of his movies have been fabulous oh, hits, no. but no, no filmmaker is, you know, a perfect batting record, if you will. So, but his <laughs> high points are definitely among the best in the history of the genre. Yeah. It, it, what made me, I, 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 I compare it to, um, I think it was Babe Ruth, the year that he won the the home run. Yeah, you um, remember that. He was also the the strikeout king. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is. You're getting the, you know, Hills of Eyes 2. <laughs> or the next, um, what was one of the other ones that was so horrible. But then you also wind up getting these gems that are utterly spectacular in so many different ways. And the thing that I love about him is that whether it's because of his character or his intelligence or the fact that he studied English, psychology, philosophy, writing, he really looked for the reasons behind certain things. Not Again, not all the time, but he, there's a reason why that you feel the same as you do in a psychological thriller where it's just gnawing at your brain. When you look at Nightmare on Elm Street, and the reasons for it and the reasons he made certain decisions about the film as well, they're, they're intelligent. And a lot of people will knock horror as being a far more, you know, dismissed genre. But the fact is, is that A, it has an insanely passionate audience that are willing to, you know, put up with a lot of crap, <laughs> but you do wind up with these gems where it, again, it makes you think as well. Now, some of this, it's been redone so many times over the year that it's, you know, we, we see this as just a cliche, but some of the things that were done are cliches now because he started them back then as well. <laughs> yeah. So you have to, in the same way that when we talk about comic books on our, our comic book podcasts that are older and, and games and whatnot, you have to, to a certain degree, look at it in the time that it was and say, I remember these watching them in their time and being able to appreciate them for what they were. And part of it too, is that I firmly believe like we're grown men and we can appreciate a horror for what it is, but I don't always feel that we're the target audience either. I think that it is especially meant for that teenage crowd just to right. cut loose and have fun, scare the shit out of them and be able to experience something that we've all gotten to experience over the years. And I think it's, I mean, a lot of it has to do with getting older. As you grow older, there's less stuff in movies that can scare you. Your, your life experiences have changed or just the fact that you've seen enough of the movies that you're kind of numbed to it. I think that's why a lot of the big horror movies over the past decade or so have been that super violent, gory torture fests because that's kind of what they had to do to shock the old school horror audience into something new and different. And that, that never worked for me personally. But it's that's why a lot of the newer horror movies that myself and a lot of my friends look at now and they go, oh my God, like that's that's awful. Like it's not even scary, but there's always a generation that clings to it and does find it truly frightening because it's a fresh experience for them. Well, case in point, we talked about this, which, okay, 
Oh, when we talked about the park on the the, the game or for the lore podcast and because it's you lose your child. And it's one of those things where like once you've raised kids especially – this kind of stuff doesn't scare you anymore. <laughs> What's scary is crap is forgetting <laughs> your kid in the mall or things like that. Those are the nightmares that wake you up in a cold sweat. Uh, not so much of this. And the thing is, is that as much as I love the genre as well, when done well, which sadly I'm still finding it hard to find movies where I it's done well for me personally. They're few and far between. Yeah, so – but I do love it. Even as I'm watching these again, because I watched obviously these three for this this episode, and I'm watching it, and it's like, oh man, I I I feel the fondness for the movie because of the memory of the experience initially. Mm-hmm. But as I'm watching it now, I'm far more critical. Not just because we were doing the podcast and I had to be, but I'm critical because I'm an adult watching it. And it's, again, from a different time period. So it was very – it was easy to be complacent while watching it and not really on the edge of my seat, which is – that's sad going back to that and thinking, oh, it's it's never going to be that again for me, which mm-hmm. is too bad. Yeah, like especially with The Hills Have Eyes, like that is a vastly different movie for me now than it was yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, The Hills of Eyes was one of those too, where I watched that when I was fairly young. And what's like, it's, it's, you know, you're young enough when you think back to it, when you're thinking, even just a look of that dude was enough to scare me. <laughs> he didn't have to do anything, just be on stage. And it was like, oh my God, what's going to happen? <laughs> well, but also, how many movies has he been in since The Hills Have Eyes? It's it's not makeup. That's, that's yeah, kind of really. What the guy looks like so they just keep casting him in these similar roles. So just like you know the horror itself, we've been desensitized to his appearance. Yeah, yeah, that is true as well. It was interesting going back and reading more about Craven because actually I had not really obviously studied the man or anything. I watched his movies, enjoyed some of them, and that was that. But it was interesting again seeing more about how he fell into doing movies and whatnot. And the fact that, again, he was doing teaching English and then it wasn't until he bought a 16 millimeter camera while teaching at a high school that he started making short films and then working for Harry Chapin. (laughs) Chapin. And I was going, well, I wouldn't have guessed that. And I actually had not even known that he was making hardcore X-rated movies either. Well, if you're going to learn how to build a film to a climax. Insert rim shot here. All right. So I was saving that one. I'll admit to it. I assumed as much. <laughs> I can tell when it's off the cuff. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll start off. And like I said, we're going to talk about three. We're going to talk about the Hills of Eyes and Nightmare on Elm Street. And then finally Scream. And they all came out in different decades. And they really showcase growth and artistry in Craven's style. Because and, – and again, I I noticed it a lot more because I went back and watched them all. I don't know if you actually watch them all or if you're going off of memory kind of thing. Oh, no. I, I rewatched them all recently. But it was interesting. It was interesting seeing where he was at in terms of not just the writing but also the directing and a lot of the choices that were made in the film from the very serious trying to get under your skin by way of that tension building to – to to the, uh, an ultimate climax, like you said, 
to the Nightmare on Elm Street that's much more playing with your head about different psychological and, and philosophical questions to then scream where it's just meta <laughs> from beginning to end, just this meta horror experience of playing with cliches of and stereotypes of horror movies and whatnot. And it was, it was a lot of fun seeing them in that regard. Mm-hmm. So go ahead with the Hills of Eyes. So when I look back at the history of horror, you know, there's all these different, you know, kind of eras. You had, you know, the universal classic movie monsters back in, you know, the 30s, the 40s. And then into the 50s and 60s, you get into like the sci-fi era with, you know, the thing, the original thing, uh, you know, the blob and that sort of stuff. But once you get into the 70s, things shift, at least in American horror. Uh, over in England, uh, the Hammer films are doing a much better job with actual horror than in America. But that's a podcast for another time. <laughs> with American horror, it shifted away from, you know, the monsters to a different type of monster. It's not a creature. It's not something supernatural. In the 70s, you had, you know, with The Hills Have Eyes, as well as the movie that in a lot of ways inspired it with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it became a lot about kind of America itself was the scary thing where yeah, it's all these. That hasn't gone away. <laughs> this, is, this is true. As you can, you can change that to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I saw Papa Jupiter last week. <laughs> but it wasn't about so much, you know, here's, you know, some big threat that the heroes have to overcome. It was, let's just put them in an out of the way place. And all of a sudden, this weird stuff doesn't seem quite as weird anymore. It kind of fits in with the setting and the story we want to tell. And at the same time, it makes it that much more frightening from a horror standpoint because we can all think of you know, a weird place in the woods. Like, you know, for me, there's I won't go to the Everglades at night, <laughs> not because of, you know, the skunk ape, but because there's actual freaking alligators there. <laughs> but all of these kind of forgotten areas in civilization that just give us this weird feeling because it's something different from what we're used to. And who knows what lives out there? It could be a vicious animal. It could be a serial killer. It could be some messed up inbred family. So those movies in the seventies really tapped into that. And the Hills have eyes at the time was really one of the best because it just made you feel so uncomfortable when realistically there wasn't anything monsterish about how scary it was. Like there was definitely, it was a killer movie. It was violent. It was disturbing, but when you compare it to, you know, the traditional ideals of what a horror movie is, the this and its contemporaries really stand out as their own unique thing. See, this was I was just looking it up because I couldn't remember either. This was five years after Deliverance had come out as well. Mm-hmm. So the idea of the inbred family in the woods was already part of the psyche at the time and that fear kind of thing that this exists and is something that we really need to be careful of that when this came out, then it, it had been kind of established in theater to a certain degree that yes, this really is something to be afraid of. Now let's just ramp it up to 11 yeah. <laughs> and see just how much we can scare the shit out of you. And so because of that, it worked. And a lot of the ways that he did that, like, even rewatching it all these years later, 
I'm still creeped out at the scene where Big Bob is running down the road at night. And Papa Jupiter's, you know, you know, running around in the bushes and you know, kind of whispering to him and freaking him out. Because not only is it, you know, a creepy scene, he's out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night, but it's the way Jupiter was getting into his head, you know, knowing that his family was out there without him to protect them. And a lot of the Screw that. He's alone by himself. Well, on yeah, the set. That, too. <laughs> that too. Don't get Having me wrong. been there, that shit is scary. <laughs> but but it kind of ties into what you were saying with the whole, you know, your kids lost at an amusement park thing. It's, you know, he's separated from his family and, you know, he's been yeah. the protector, you know, the former police officer. He's the one with the gun. So there's a lot of that other psychological narrative that goes into it that does make that scene still to this day pretty damn creepy. Yeah. Yeah. What I liked about it too was that you go through it all and it's almost, with the exception of a couple of scenes, something you could watch with still someone who's fairly young. Mm-hmm. And part of that is we've been so desensitized to a lot of different things that we kind of scoff it off and you can laugh about it and it's not a big deal. But there's very little actual blood and gore and things like that. It's just that psychological buildup of being afraid of where you crashed and that there's a big bad out in the woods kind of thing. And, and that's something that is universal for everyone. And a lot of that has to do with the stricter constraints that the filmmakers were under from the NDAA yeah, yeah. at the time. Like the first cut of this movie was a lot more vicious than it is now, but they had to scale it back. And a lot of the filmmakers in that era learned a lot about filmmaking from working under those constraints. You know, what makes this scary? Is it the blood? Is it the violence or is it the tension? Same thing, you know, with Halloween, the work John Carpenter had to do there. He had to learn how to make the movie scary without it being as in your face and go back however many episodes it was when we were talking about horns and how much I disliked that movie as well as anything else Alexander Aja had directed. And I kept mentioning the Hills Have Eyes remake, which I find absolutely distasteful. And you cannot watch with most mature adults, let alone a younger <laughs> audience. And it completely loses everything that made this original so gripping. What's sad is that, I mean, it's a catch-22. The Because of the advancements in CGI as well as makeup and prosthetics and all kinds of things that they can do now for their special effects, far too many filmmakers are relying on that versus the story but if they could do it effectively they could wind up having still spectacular effects but it's like a seasoning that you don't overdo it because as i've said time and time again the wife and i watch face off religiously yes (laughs) i was pissed off today when i saw a tweet from someone that ruined the ending that just aired yesterday because oh. we were going to watch it tonight. We may still, but now I know who won. And it was like, you bastard. And it's actually somebody high up in special effects, but still, you <laughs> bastard. I was pissed off. And so anyways, we love that. And we love seeing that, that how so many different things are accomplished on film. It's really changed the way that we look at that. And even I found, again, going back and rewatching these three, you're like, oh, I see how you did these things. Now that's, that was clever, but it's, it's when you go back to the older stuff and it's not so much about seeing, Oh, I see what you did there. And it's pretty simplistic compared to today's standards. No, it's, I see how you used what little money you had, 
and and the the technology and all these things to achieve your desired gold like the glove for nightmare on elm street mm-hmm. it was just the cheapest way of doing it <laughs> and so that's why they they made it a glove instead of something else that would have cost a lot more and guess what that glove is a lot more frightening because of it and it's because we can relate to it and say, shit, I could make that in my basement. Yeah, I, that's what makes it scary. Again, going back to rewatching it years later, that original scene from Nightmare on Elm Street where it's Freddy building the glove is still chilling. Yeah, it because is. Because of that. Because exactly. you go, huh, what's my neighbor doing in his shed? <laughs> <laughs> Once again, Florida, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> Lights on in my neighbor's garage. I figure he's just having a beer, trying to get away from his wife for a while. <laughs> Whereas I think he's trying to get away from his wife permanently. <laughs> <laughs> if I go knock on the garage door, it'll open. He'll reach into the fridge, grab me a beer. You, he'll sit on the fridge and say, don't open this. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other things that I really like, which we saw in The Hills of Eyes, and that continues onward as well, is the camaraderie between directors, where you're seeing the ripped up uh, Jaws poster (laughs) in The Hills of Eyes, and then Sam Raimi puts a ripped up poster of The Hills of Eyes in Evil Dead, and it just keeps going back and forth throughout all the movies. And they do the same thing with Halloween references everywhere. And it's that back and forth between the horror directors that I loved. And again, when I saw it in the Hills of Eyes, it was like, oh, I remember this. I love that stuff. Yeah. It's, I remember it's actually, I had seen Evil Dead before I saw the Hills Have Eyes. Oh. And it was people talking about that poster and that scene. Like, oh, this is, you know, the director's way of saying that his movie is scarier than the Hills Have Eyes. I was like, well, now I need to find that movie and yeah. watch it. So, you know, a late night trip to the VHS store. <laughs> it's true, though. It, it introduces you to a lot of other movies just because it's that you want to be in on that joke. And that's mm-hmm. what it was when we were young. I was lucky when I was young. And again, I had a, a really good buddy and we read comics together and we watched movies. And I mean, that was our introduction to like Monty Python was watching them all together. And we would watch horror movies like the... Dawn of the Dead movie, that sucker is imprinted on my brain forever because of the fun that we had laughing throughout the whole thing. And Mm -hmm. that's something that, again, these types of movies brought to us that, unfortunately, I don't think the new generation is going to have going forward, which is, I know I sound like an old man, but it's true. It's it's, it's a little sad that they don't get that. Uh, There's, see, again, with, with modern horror, the really great movies are not are not the movies everybody's watching. I so said there there's that that element out there with stuff like uh, It Follows, The Conjuring, uh, Insidious. Really good movies, but they're overshadowed by numerous Paranormal Activity sequels and uh, more remakes of these old school. Yeah, I read an article a few weeks ago. We're getting a second remake of the Nightmare on Elm Street coming through. Really? Yes. Oh, for because the Lord. first one was such a fabulous hit. They realized, huh? Okay, we didn't quite get that right. Let's try, try one more get. time. Let's get a new guy as Spider Man. And I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> 
It's it, it's. I can see where a lot of filmmakers are just hitting a brick wall. Like we said, both with the desensitized audience and the. I can see that so many studios and directors are kind of at a loss for ideas, so they keep going back to these classic wells, and they can't reproduce that experience because. It's more than just the movie itself that made it what it is. I think also part of the problem, and this is just me speculating, but there was that time when because of budget and because of the stigma attached to horror movies wherein you really weren't getting the best actors. And that's (laughs) obvious. You're watching some of these shows and you're going, that hurts. Or you get a show like The Hills of Eyes, which, you know, they put a little bit of money in a couple of actors that were decent, but then they kind of skimped the budget for the rest of them. So that kind of made it so that it's, it's, again, it's hard to make a really good movie. If the actors suck, sometimes you'll still have something that shines through, but it does make a big difference. And then along comes freaking scream. And all of a sudden up Drew Barrymore, big name mm-hmm. is saying, I really want to be in this. This will be awesome. It kind of changes the game there, but it seemed to only change it for a while. And then you got a lot of big name actors kind of jumping on that bandwagon and you got some really fun horror shows for a little while. And I don't know, just an opinion, but you're watching a lot of horror shows. Now you're going, who the hell is that? I don't even know who that is. What, where is this coming from? And that's not even getting into the sparkly vampires bullshit, but I mean, it's just one of those things where I think that it's not just the script's fault. It's not just the director's fault, but a lot of it does fall square on the, actor's shoulders as well Mm -hmm. because they're trying again they're trying to replicate that feeling of well if Wes Craven and John Carpenter could do it with unknown actors you know who the heck was (laughs) I'm completely Jamie Lee Curtis like you know she was known at the time but she wasn't the superstar she became so they're like oh well we'll find the next Jamie Lee Curtis no you won't (laughs) well freaking Johnny Depp yeah first movie was Nightmare on Elm Street. What kills me is that he didn't even go audition for that. It was his buddy who was auditioning <laughs> and they saw him and it was Craven's daughter who thought that he looked, what was it, beautiful or some damn thing. <laughs> and so they recruited him. And it, what's funny is that I'm watching it again because, again, you, you forget these these things. I'm watching it again. I was like, oh, crap. That's right. It's Johnny Depp. But he was awesome in it. <laughs> so you can find the completely unknown mm-hmm. That will shine, but it's pretty rare. And I mean, even some of the quote unquote names in some of these shows, you're looking at and you're cringing a little when they're delivering well, the certain thing. lines. When a lot of these older movies were made, they had these unknown actors because they were unknown movies. When you're trying to cast an unknown actor in a major studio tentpole horror film, that's where you get that disconnect. Yeah. What were we talking about again? <laughs> I don't know. You were still on Hills of Eyes. I don't know if you're done. <laughs> I it, I think we said most of it, but it, a lot of those filmmaking things that could you really get away in, you know, modern era getting having a horror film where a lot of the tension is built around walkie-talkies? Yeah. <laughs> Damn it, there's no cell service. We're getting a bad signal here. <laughs> like it's it's one of those things where this movie 
it already hasn't been made correctly in the modern era, but it's very much a relic of its time because a lot of what made it so effective doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah, and it is one of those things where in a younger audience watching it is simply not going to get it either. Things that we kind of live through. I mean, again, you're watching Nightmare on Elm Street and the big thing with the, the telephones and, you know, <laughs> and, and stop calling here at this time and the, the, all this crap with the corded phones. And I'm going, nowadays, I mean, most kids have never seen that type of telephone. It's just understood that your friends are going to have every type of communication device at their fingertips so you can reach them anytime, any place. Mm-hmm. So that tension is not something that they can relate to in the same way that we can. So, cause it's funny. I'm watching, <laughs> I'm watching Nightmare on Elm Street. And when the mother's talking on the phone and hangs up, I was going, we had that exact same phone. <laughs> Everybody had our that exact kitchen. Exactly. Same phone. Even the same color, everything. And it was like, it was in the kitchen. I can remember exactly where it was. I can remember how long the cord was because it reached to the counter. It was a we big event in the family when you got a longer phone cord for the kitchen phone. Damn right. <laughs> All of a sudden you could do the dishes and cradle the phone on your neck and periodically dropping it in the water. <laughs> Seriously, that was it. But it was okay after you dropped it. Damn in the right. Water. You just dry that sucker off and there you go. You sound garbled for a little bit and that's it. <laughs> but yeah, it was very much of its time. Nightmare on Elm Street, not as much, obviously. I mean, that was 84 and, and that's mm-hmm. It's not just me talking. It's just, I mean, there's certain things in it that, yeah, are dated, especially the idea of the high school students in school kind of thing is that's not what high school students in school look like anymore. So there's a lot of that certainly that's dated, but the ideas behind it and the, and what it's about kind of thing still can hold true. Absolutely. And if put in the proper hands I actually think that they could remake it effectively and do a good job with it. Because again, so much of it is that psychological thriller of that. Are you, or are you not dreaming right now? That hasn't gone away. We can still appreciate that type of story. Just look at inception. Yeah, exactly. Inception was basically Nightmare on Elm street without Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Yeah. So it is something that can be done. It's just, obviously going to be put in the right hands, but it is funny because I was watching it again. And again, I'm, I'm an adult. I've raised four teenagers and going back to my point of a lot of these were made for kids. You get to that point where it's like, Oh God, give me a break. Seriously. Like when you, when she's in the bathtub and you're going, she's trying not to sleep. (laughs) She's having a warm bath. What the, and then the hand coming out from the crotch and you're going, oh, come on. And that's something that even Craven talked about, like for a while, he wanted to get away from mm-hmm. horror because of the blatant misogyny and bullshit in it kind of thing. And it's like, well, you're kind of partially responsible for well, some of that. I think that's a very important thing for him to say. Like he realizes the culture that he helped create and wanted to be an important part of changing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of things in that one that... Like Scream was more recent in my mind because obviously it was done in 96. And by the time I saw Scream, I mean, I was raising four kids and married and the wife and I are watching it together kind of thing, as opposed to the other experiences of watching them as a teen or even younger kind of thing. So it 
was way, way different. And I could appreciate all of that, the meta aspects of Scream, plus what went into it in terms of the, the, the psychology and stuff like that. And yeah, there was still a lot of stupid teen bullshit. But again, that's par for the course with, again, the rules of what makes a horror film a horror film. So so then rewatching Nightmare was different for me. It was just I... Again, I could appreciate what it was and appreciate the story elements that were very intelligently done, especially as it continued to unravel. And you're realizing at different points, holy crap, is she still Mm -hmm. in that same nightmare from the beginning? Because I'm trying to remember when the big dynasty, it was all a dream thing was. Because that was in the 80s as well at some point. So, like, there was a point where we kind of got fed up with that bullshit. (laughs) I was like, okay, (laughs) stop. And that was the point. (laughs) Stop using this as an excuse for your bad storytelling, people. (laughs) But this wasn't there yet. And so when you're watching it, and again, even as an adult rewatching it, I really was enjoying that, that back and forth of thinking that everything's all right and picking up on the slight clues that show up like the, 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 well, the phone was not really a slight clue, but it was a, you know, it was a pretty blatant blow to the head, but there were other clues where you're going like, Oh, I can, I can see what you're doing there. You're kind of laying the groundwork so that at the end, we're not calling red herring. It actually makes sense and it's fun. Mm-hmm. So there was a Sorry, lot. I was trying to look up when that episode of Dallas was. <laughs> No, it 19- was in Dallas. It was right around the same time. Was yeah. it Dallas or Dynasty? Yeah. I thought it was Dynasty. Uh, it, it was Dallas. Okay. Uh, I never watched it, but I remember the outrage. <laughs> I remember my mom in the living room yelling at the TV. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I don't even think my folks used to watch it. I don't think so. It was just one of those things that it was a cultural thing that we could appreciate at the time. Mm-hmm. Man, people were pissed. Oh, my God. <laughs> the outrage was real. That was, that was the first first world problems. <laughs> that was that. <laughs> the uh, The funny thing that I liked about Nightmare on Elm Street was looking as well at all of the people that potentially could have been in roles. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone from Charlie Sheen onwards that well, now you look at it and go, holy crap, you guys are all pretty successful right now. If you have several hours to kill, I highly recommend. There's a documentary on Netflix yeah. called, oh God, Never Sleep Again, I think it's called. I think it's called Never Sleep Again. Something, something along those lines or Don't Go to Sleep or something like that. And it's a four-hour documentary on the history of Nightmare on Elm Street. And it goes film by film, breaks down the writing, breaks down the casting, the direction, everything. It's a fantastic look at the series. Like, I have so much more appreciation for the series now than I even did when I was watching it. We're seeing like a lot of the stuff that they tried and failed with and whatnot, but seeing the casting and one of the best parts of that for me, though, was uh, when they were talking about Robert England as Freddy and how for the second movie they tried to recast him. So like, oh, anybody can play Freddy Krueger. We'll just put on the sweater, give him the glove, and it just wasn't right because... Freddy himself was such a dynamic character. And I think that's a lot of what set Nightmare on Elm Street apart from its contemporaries with, you know, Halloween and um, Friday the 13th and whatnot, where Freddy became that icon, not just because he was scary, but because he knew he was scary. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'll give you that. There was a lot more character with him as well. 
And it's that that look in his eyes where in he's in on a joke that you're not in on. Yes. <laughs> and he knows that you don't know. And he's having a lot of fun with that. And we saw that more as the series progressed and they gave him a lot more character in later movies than they did that first one. The first one, you got those glimpses, but part of what made you appreciate it, especially I find in rewatching the series is knowing where the character goes from there. Mm -hmm. And this is those early glimpses into a character just being born right there in front of us kind of thing. And I really kind of dug that a lot. Mm -hmm. And another thing about the series in general was kind of the legacy. There's that, that line you can trace from the first movie all the way through to the last where I don't want to say it was like one uninterrupted storyline, but they would have characters from the previous movies show up in the later ones. And that kind of made it that much more scary because it wasn't just, oh, Jason's back again. It was, man, they still haven't gotten rid of Freddy. And it's and a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, England's work or not England. Uh, well, England's work as well, but yeah. Craven's work as the series went on where the second movie was such a disaster. So they brought him back for the third one and had him not direct it, but be involved in the writing process. And for myself and many other fans, the third movie was the best of the entire series because it's the one that really cemented the characters, the concept, and that link from beginning to end. And they learned their lessons from the work Craven did on that third script and kind of carried that through through the next four. It wasn't just that, in my opinion. It was also, and I keep going back to the same thing, but for me, it is it is important and it's an important distinction. It was kind of that sweet spot where the effects had also gotten just mm-hmm. good enough that they could do a little bit more. So it was even more fun, but it wasn't the overkill that we have now. And so there was that period of time there where we did get more movies that were significantly more scary because we were seeing things that were far more graphic than we had before, but which still, even still looking back at it through. Today's oh yeah. Events. Now it's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time it was, and yet, it still forced the directors and writers to be a lot more clever and not as lazy with plot devices and whatnot, which is some of what we see now. So again, it was, there, there was that really brilliant sweet spot. And that's not just an old guy talking about back in my day, we knew how to make horrors. No, it's just the truth is, is that if what you love about a horror is that suspense and that, that feeling of dread that doesn't go away, followed by a decent payoff, then yeah, there really was a sweet spot in history for when you could really experience that. Yeah. And it, it was this, like you look back and ask any horror fan and a lot of the movies they'll list come from this era. Yeah. Yeah. So I love the scene again, watching it. It was one of those I'd forgotten. Again, you think back at the impact at the time and all that, when Johnny Depp gets sucked into that bed (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the blood comes shooting out because we'd seen, you know, blood shoot out in other movies. And it was as if he kind of went, you're going to need a lot more buckets, guys. <laughs> buckets and red dye can make it happen. And watching it now and you know, again, how it was done with the rotating room and crap. And it was just, it was still impactful and really well done. It's one of those Not things that's 
they could only afford to do that shot once. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's one of those things where the um again, I I believe strongly that it is because of his studies in psychology, philosophy, mm-hmm. all these things that he understands some of the core things that frighten the crap out of human beings. And blood is one of those things. And it's the same thing about the, the dreams and whatnot. And a lot of what prompted this was these Southeast Asians that were refugees coming here who were having the horrific nightmares and they laid, later termed it the, uh, what was it, the Asian sleep disorder or something that, like that? I can't remember exactly. Nah, um, right. Yeah, the, uh, the uh, Asian death syndrome. And so he was reading a lot about that at the time. And so it was that idea of this dying or having these horrific nightmares that are bad enough that are actually causing you to die in your sleep kind of thing. There was a lot of thought that went into what are specific things that really scare the shit out of people and how do I make that work in a film? And if possible, toss in a tongue on a phone because why not? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where that came from. (laughs) But that is something that stuck in my brain forever from watching it initially. And then I'm watching it again. I was going, there it is. Yep. Like, here it is. It's coming. It's yeah. coming. Not as scary anymore. Just goddamn creepy. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was Scream. So you would have, this would have been right in your wheelhouse when oh, you were a absolutely. teen when you saw this. This was high school years for Vince. Yep. So for me, yeah. Again, it was it I'm curious what the impact it had on you was versus versus me because like I said, you were already raising four kids. We're watching this. This was just it was it was good and it was enjoyable and it did things that we had not yet seen. This idea of killing off who you think is going to be the lead character, boom, almost immediately. Mm-hmm. That really set up the tone for the rest of the film that anybody can bite it at any moment, and they quite likely will. So and a lot of that has to do with the fact that in addition to not being able to make horror movies very well anymore, they absolutely can't market horror movies very well anymore because going back and all the commercials and the trailers and whatnot, 95% of it was Drew Barrymore. So when you finally did watch the movie for the first time and she was dead 10 minutes in – it, you did. You were so disoriented and had no idea what was going on that that psychological effect of the marketing combined with the movie itself was pretty mind blowing. It was. It was. And again, I, as an adult watching it, it was one of those things. And we really, my, my wife and I have always loved watching movies. And I'm trying to remember at that time. I'm trying to remember if I was just working at Blockbuster still, or if I'd finished there. I think I'd finished there by now. But again, we were watching movies all, all the time. And so, it, which, I mean, it doesn't make us experts, but you begin to recognize certain tropes, certain things, obviously, the more you watch movies. And I've always watched a lot of movies. And this idea of when, again, when she dies, it quite literally stops you in your tracks and you go like what the hell just happened that can't and you're waiting for that oh it was just a dream nightmare bullshit to come up so that she comes back but it's like no she's gone holy shit i haven't watched this movie in probably 15 years so when i'm watching it again 
I forgot. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, this is like a prank and whatnot. I forgot they killed her at the beginning. <laughs> so looking back, thinking about it from when you were a kid, was it something that you appreciated the, again, the, the tons of meta that was in the movie oh, that making fun? Or it was actually something that was frightening for you? Oh, it, it was not frightening, but it was more of that, you know, it wasn't a scary movie, but it was a thrilling movie because, you know, they did a pretty damn good job throughout of keeping you on your toes and not never really knowing where the threat was going to come from, both, you know, physically on screen as well as, you know, who the villain was. When I went to rewatch this the other night, I actually got a chill down my spine, not because of the movie, but everybody remembers like these movies that were super popular when they were in high school, you know, uh, Breakfast Club, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. When I look back at the movies that were popular when I was in high school, I don't look back on it so fondly. <laughs> because as soon as the movie started with you know the fashion and the music and just like the general, it was like, oh, because there were so many awful movies that had the exact same aesthetic. Poor Nev Campbell and Skeet Ulrich were in high school for 15 years. Yes. Like, it was the same actors I've seen in dozens of movies playing variations of the same roles they've played in dozens of movies. So it took a while for me as a viewer to just get over that initial, oh, I've seen this movie a thousand times <laughs> just with 900 different titles. Yeah, see, we had that because we would watch certain shows with the kids too. So we recognized the the different actors as they had grown up as well and were doing things. And it's like, oh, God, I know you're nearly 30. You're not fooling anybody <laughs> here, okay? You're not in high school. <laughs> and that's kind of what I liked about Barrymore's intro as well, too. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, she's supposed to play a younger character, obviously. But initially, it's while she's still playing fairly a, a young kid, she could pass off as just, you know, very late teens at least kind of thing. And it was, I found it far more credible as an adult watching it kind of thing. It's also one of those things. E.T. was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. Oh yeah. yeah. So I, I still had that connection to her. Yeah. Not, well, everybody you know, did. Not in a creepy way, but it was a recognizable face from my childhood that now that I'm not a child anymore, it's still a recognizable face. So putting her into that situation of being horribly murdered again, psychologically has a certain effect beyond the movie itself. Yeah. Yeah. I do like a lot of, and it's, it's, you don't often say that either. I, I do like a lot of the actors that were in this for the roles that they played. Mm -hmm. They weren't necessarily the best in other things that they did, but man, you put them in here as those goofy or psychotic teens Again, it's one of those things where in you we we we'd seen so many of the same teens, quote unquote teens in the same movies kind of thing. <laughs> but they still kind of made it work for this one. I'm not talking Scream 2, 3, or 4 kind of thing, but this being the first one and at the time watching it was still something that I could enjoy and and be all right with the cast. And freaking <laughs> what's the name? Henry Winkler. Yes. <laughs> See, I grew up watching that. Happy Days was like, I mean, we grew up watching Happy Days, watched it all the time. There was like the Fonz was above and beyond what cool was. And there was a reason why he didn't do a lot after Happy Days because he was so typecast and he wanted to change. But 
again, going back to so much of this movie is is meta and is poking fun at everything. Like when he opens up the closet and you see the black Fonzie leather jacket <laughs> and he looks at him in, in the mirror and fixes his hair and you're going, oh God, that was funny. So a lot of this show, even though it is a horror I mean, they, they got the, the ratings lowered on it because they convinced them to look at the movie as a comedy, a parody, mm-hmm. not as an actual horror show. And there are so many elements throughout that actually make you, you know, relax a lot more with this than with previous shows. There was no tension, for me at least, I can remember back to when I originally watched it as well as now there was not the build-up attention that you got in the other ones but there was something else that made it just as fun at least in a different way yeah and it it kept you off balance with the way it would mix the comedy with the the violent scenes of like okay like was it the scene where what's her name uh Tatum she's in the the garage yeah getting the beers that scene is hilarious because of how you know stupid it is when you look at it. But also that is this the point where he's going to kill her? Like just you're not afraid for the character that's in danger. You're almost kind of cheering on the villain, yeah. at that point, <laughs> which is a very different kind of tension from you know a traditional horror film. But it still works in its own way. Yeah, yeah, and then the the strength of the. The actors, and I say strength, I'm not talking freaking Oscar worthy here, but again, <laughs> in terms of horrors, the strength of the actors going forward is, especially for the two killers, what really draws you in, especially what's his name? Not the main, not the Skeet, but the other dude. What's uh, his real Matthew name? Matthew Lillard. Yeah. God, I love him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because it's never really explained why he's kind of doing this, but. When she goes through his bedroom, you see all the freaky shit all over that he's got in his room, and then you're kind of piecing things together, and you realize as the he movie was progresses, twenty six when this movie came. Yeah, yeah, he's not so much a kid anymore. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, there was a lot of things that kind of show you that he's not just a little a weird kid; he's off balance. But it's when the shit hits the fan, and a lot of the things too were kind of improved by him. <laughs> I was reading, which I thought was just gave me so much more respect for him after that. (laughs) But yeah, a lot of these things were just, again, because of those scenes, that's the payoff for the end because you're not getting the Freddy Krueger payoff at the end or, you know, the inbred people in the back. This is very much just kids being killers, which when it's done without a hint of comedy is scary as shit. But when you've inserted comedy throughout the whole movie, the payoff then better have some bloody good acting to make it compelling as well. And it, that's a fine balance and, and it it worked beautifully in this. The the scene at the end where they're stabbing each other. Yes. Is it's, it's, it it feels so raw because like I said, they, they take that, you know, it's not funny anymore. It becomes creepy. It becomes weird. And that's when they establish it of go okay it's not just you know okay a meta like funny movie killer that's when those characters really do become disturbing and uh, that that really give, gives the movie a big tonal shift that it really needed for that last climax yeah it's funny because i look back at these and 
While I'm more inclined to recommend, say, The Hills of Eyes, but even that, somewhat but not as much. Nightmare, I think, is pretty much required viewing mm-hmm. for people. Scream is one of those where I'm I'm kind of torn. I can appreciate what it is and really enjoy it for what it is. But and I can also see that it's it really not for everybody. Yeah, but even then, it's not. I can really see with that how it's an even smaller percentage of people that I can think can really appreciate it and would really enjoy it for what mm-hmm. it is. Because you can't say, oh, go watch this. This is fantastic horror. And you can't say, oh, go watch this. This is pretty damn funny. It's that blend that not everybody is going to enjoy nearly as much. Yeah. So any parting thoughts? Um. I just wrap touching back uh, with Scream really quick. Uh, the new nightmare, the the seventh nightmare on Elm Street, the Wes Craven's new nightmare. I remember when that first came out and I watched it, I was like, this is weird. Like, what the hell is this? <laughs> but it's a movie I've really come to respect a lot more, you know, in later years and looking back on it and really what he was trying to do. And now when you look at it as it was kind of a test run for Scream, like, I didn't like it that much when it first came out, but honestly, now it's probably one of my favorite nightmare movies. Really? I yeah. haven't seen that one. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, that is going to wrap up the show. Thank you very much for listening, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. Let us know your thoughts on the site. You can, of course, find us at popcornronin.com. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Zen Buddhist and Vince is at Simodian. And you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher as well actually got a fairly good episode for next episode <laughs> that, that sounded Smooth. horrible but it's still better than what you should have heard in the podcast i guess <laughs> yes marty i'm talking about you <laughs> did he edit that out or am i gonna get to experience i don't that think you will I, I i've got the recording though because i'm the one that actually <laughs> recorded it so i may put that out someday if he gets lippy with me <laughs> so anyways our next episode we are going to be talking about mr holmes which we mentioned in passing before. I know we've had a Sherlock's Home episode, but this is different. We just I, I just watched this. I don't know if you've watched it yet. I, I've been reading the reviews, and I really need to watch it. It, it was... It's one of those movies that makes you think throughout, but also afterwards. And just sit there and think, that was spectacular. And that doesn't happen often for me. You know, like, yes, I'll see movies and think, oh, that was really good or whatever. But when you're watching a movie and you're thinking, that almost changed me. Like, I really felt chills at points where it was, the acting was so spot on. The scenes were so spectacular that it was really impactful. And so that's why after I watched it, I told you, like, watch us. We're we're doing this. So, and then... The next episode after that, we're actually going to have another grab bag of anime. So that should be a lot of fun because I have some rants that I have to get out (laughs) based on some (laughs) animes I've been watching. So thank you for listening and we'll talk to you in a few weeks. TV, movie, and anime reviews, please make certain to stop by popcornronin.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments. If you'd like to hear more from Roger and Vince, check out their Comic Book Informer podcast, as well as For the Lore, a weekly gaming podcast. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, manellijamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. Mm-hmm.